I'll begin with an illustration. We headed to California last year and we had to drive 70 and I think it was 15 after that, but 70 as you leave Colorado and you go into Utah. It is quiet. It is mystic almost in that you look and for miles you see the buttes and it's wonderful. You can actually get off and park and just look out. Probably not as majestic as the Grand Canyon, but still what we experienced as you drive through there is that it's, it's otherly. It's otherworldly. It is there and you look and you go, this is different. And you stop and you don't, I didn't look at Ashley and go, don't I look cool next to the buttes? This wouldn't have been appropriate. Isn't this a nice shirt compared to that? You don't. You you lose yourself in the magnificence. And that's just a that's just a tiny illustration of what does it mean for us to even comprehend the topic we're talking about today, the holiness of God. And so those, those verses that Andrew read, we're, we're, they're going to answer the three big questions of life. Who is God? Who am I? And why am I here? Everybody in the world has to wrestle with who is God, who am I, in the context of who is God, and why am I here? And if you can't answer those correctly, if you don't get the answer of God correctly, you will end up living for yourself and the world is, is your, as some have said, oyster. <laughs> if you don't get a picture of yourself right, you may have a right understanding of God, but it won't help you live out what He's called us to do. And if you just focus on the world, you may go in a fashion and take care of people and you may nurse them right into hell if you don't give them the greatest news of the gospel. Those are the three biggies, and they're all answered right here. We're going to begin in verse 8. Verse 8. And I, Isaiah, heard, a voice, heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? And so Isaiah hears this question from this holy God, who we'll get to see in a minute. He hears this question. And then he says, here am I, send me. And God said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make their, the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and the, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And so he says, here am I, or here I am, send me. He did not say, whoa, you know, this would be good for Mike Pittman to do. Oh my. He didn't hear that question and go, oh man, I can't wait to tell this to Pat Sheehy so he can go. He says, here am I. Send me. We'll get to it in a minute, but something had happened so much so that he would say, I'm ready to go. Whatever you say, I'm ready. When God says that, when God's called us to do that, do we consider him our personal assistant? 
Or is, are we going to partner with him in what he wants us to do? And, and he gave Isaiah in verses 9 and 10 that you're going to preach and there's going to be an unbelieving response. And Isaiah could have easily said, no thank you. I'm done. No, I, I, I've had this experience and I heard what you asked and I have, yeah, I originally said, yeah, here I am, send me. But after hearing that, that I'm going to preach and they're not going to respond, no. I'm going to go proclaim this good news that there's a holy God and they're not going to, no, no thanks. In fact, he could have pulled what we looked at just a few weeks ago at Jonah. I'm going to go, you say go and do this, I'm going to go the opposite direction. That's not what he does. Look what he says in verse 11. Then I said, how long, O oh Lord? And I don't think, if you read this and then you read the rest of the book of Isaiah, it wasn't a questioning of God's command. It was just, how long, O oh Lord? Here I am, send me, how long? And God gives them the promised result of this unbelieving response. Until the cities lie waste and without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And, and he says, you're going to go until it's all over, until judgment has come. And so Isaiah, if we learn in the first, his first statement, we learned that he is available. He is available to do what God calls him to do. And as we see in 11 through and 12, he is dependable. He is available to do God's commission and he is dependable. He will do it no matter how long it takes, no matter what it costs him. And God gives him a promise in verse 13. He was not only available, dependable, but he was expected. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, and like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, Isaiah, don't you ever give up because the holy seed is in the stump. You may not see immediate results. You may just need to stay faithful to the end, but you, you just recognize the holy seed is in the stump. And so Isaiah was available, he was dependable, and he was expected. He did not have a consumer mentality of God. He saw God as real. And so the question is, why would Isaiah be so available and so dependable knowing that he was going to do a ministry that was full of fruitlessness? We're here to spread a glory of God for the good of the world. And so was Isaiah. And you think, he was going to do that, but the world would not respond. Why would he be so available and so dependable? Well, you see it in verses 5 through 7. Why would he be so available and so dependable? Why would he stay faithful to his mission, as it says on the outline? It's because he experienced a radical transformation. Not an intellectual transformation, a radical mind, body, and soul transformation. Look at verse 5. And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me. For I am lost. Whereas Andrew read, I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the one who is over all. He says, Woe is me. Literally, I am undone. I am unraveled. I am disintegrated. He sees the Lord of hosts. 
And he falls like Job. He falls like John in the book of Revelation. And he says, take me. I'm done. I am a man of unclean lips. Here he is, one of, one of the prophets, one of those communicators of God. And he says, no, these lips are unclean. And not only are my lips, but everyone around me. We are unclean. And he curses me. He doesn't say gadzooks or, man, we'll just keep going with this. Mike Pittman really needs to see this. Pat Sheehy could really stand alone. He says, woe is me. He recognizes the one thing that is true of all of us. I am the biggest sinner that you know. And you are the biggest sinner that you know. I am the biggest sinner that you know or that I know, and you're the biggest sinner that you know, he says, woe is me. He said, the problem with the world is not out there somewhere. It's right here and in here. So much so that we want to say, the problem is really out there. It is my situation. Quote, needs aren't being met. If something, somebody did this, ergo, therefore, I would respond in a different way. That's not what Isaiah does. He says, woe is me. And he experienced, if he wanted to write it down in verse 5, a radical humility. Woe is me. I should die. But God doesn't leave him there. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the altar, most likely the altar of sacrifice. And he came and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. I'm a man of unclean lips, and this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away. And he takes it to its logical end. Your sin, what you came face to face with, your uncleanliness, your sin is atoned for. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And immediately the Lord, through the seraphim, touches his lips and says, you're cleansed. The element of judgment, the altar of sacrifice, was used to save this man. And that his pain was immediately, this pain of uncleanliness was replaced with the pain of God's cleansing judgment upon his sin. Your sin, Isaiah, has been atoned for. Guess who was not on the altar? Isaiah. Isaiah cannot atone for his own sin and we cannot atone for our own sin. We've had one who's come. As 1 John says, he's not only the Savior of your sins but the entire world. He is the propitiation. He is the one, and his name is Jesus, whom God put his wrath on Jesus Christ so he didn't have to lay his wrath on you or me. He said, Isaiah, your sin is atoned for. It's covered, literally. It's covered. The, the debt that you owed me, the, the wrath that was upon you, it's covered. You're now a man of clean lips. And so he goes from radical humility to radical purity. And he sees himself in a true light. Why would he want to go and stay faithful to this mission that would be full of fruitlessness? Is because Isaiah saw that his whole life had been radically changed and how sinful he was. And he says, you know what? I've been radically changed. 
and that one who can save me from eternal judgment, whatever that one asks me to do, I'll go. And I'll go for however long. And so he accepted this assignment without hesitation. First question, who will go for us? Here I am, send me. He was the eager kid at the front of the class, right? Hands up always first. I'll do it, I'll do it. Well, do you understand that you're going to go and these people aren't going to respond and in fact it's going to get worse? How long? He was able to stay available and dependable and expectant and faithful to the mission because he had a radical transformation. He was radically humbled before God and he was radically transformed by God. And in that, he has a true self-image. Not self-esteem, self-image. He understands who he is. Because if, if he didn't understand who he was, he would default on his mission. If his image was based upon, and this goes back to the study, his performance, right? If I am who I am because of how I perform, when I succeed, I am prideful but not humble. And if I am who I am because of my performance, if I fail, now I'm humble but I am not confident. But if my image has nothing to do with my performance and has everything to do with God's work on my life, then I am both confident that he will work through me and humble that he would even use me. We are radically, and this is what Dr. Keller said, he said, when you are sinful yet loved, I love that, sinful yet loved, radically lost but absolutely accepted, you will be humbly confident. It's a unique self-image that's only found in the gospel. And so why would Isaiah feel so humble and helpless and aware of his sinfulness? Leads us to our third section there. He was faithful to the mission because of a radical transformation because of this in 1 through 4, a beautiful revelation. He was, he knew exactly who he was. I am a sinful man condemned to die, but he's been radically transformed and he knew his purpose. I'm to go for that person who radically changed my life and do whatever they say for as long as they say. And who was that? This beautiful revelation. It's Isaiah 6, 1-4. through It's the holiness of God. That's what changed his life. And he didn't have to have God reveal this to him. And Jesus says in Matthew 11, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so long before Jesus was born, he had chosen to uh, let Isaiah see his Father. And this is what he saw. It was in the year that King Uzziah had died. And there's no, by the way, in the Bible, there's no uh, casual information. The Holy Spirit, through the work of the men, was like, you know, it's kind of some white space here. I'm just going to go ahead and fill that in. But yeah, oh, let's just do this prepositional phrase. In the year that King Uzziah died, that'll kind of give it a context. No. Write down 2 Chronicles 26. 2 Chronicles 26 and verse 16. Second Chronicles 26 and verse 16, it says, and the title of this is Uzziah's Pride and Punishment. 
But when he was strong, this is Uzziah, he grew proud to his destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Kings don't get to go into the temple. Priests go into the temple. And Uzziah, although he had been a bold, good king and had and brought some political prosperity to the nation, was too bold. He was too close to God. I'll walk in and I'll offer some incense. But Azariah the priest went after him and 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor and they withstood Isaiah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, for the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. And by the way, those priests who burn incense better do it how the Lord calls them to do it. You remember the story in Leviticus chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, they thought they'd get creative. Let's just let's add some creativity. Let's just, I mean, I know what I was told in Exodus 20, that I'm to do it by the book. You know what? Let's just do this. Let's go in and get some strange fire. Just let's be creative today. I'm a little, little bored with the routine. And so they, offer, they offered strange fire before the Lord and fire came out and consumed them. And this is what Moses told Aaron about his dead sons. Among those who come near me, God, I will be holy and I will be shown as holy. Before all people, I will be glorified. So when Uzziah thinks that it's now his turn to approach the Lord on Uzziah's conditions, the priests say, halt. And then Uzziah was angry. And now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense and he became angry at the priest and leprosy broke out. And he spent the rest of his life as a leper because he did not understand the holiness of God. He did not understand the reason that he had been politically successful. It's because God allowed him to be. He did not understand that when God gives directives and orders and the way things should be done, you ought to go by them. He got too proud, and it says, to his destruction. And so it's in that year that King Uzziah is, is dead, and now it's what's going to happen. What's going to happen? There's forces coming in from all sides. So it's in the year where they need to see the, the sovereign God work. It's in that year that I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. There's the true King of Kings. And when he sees him sitting on the throne, he doesn't see him in his fullness. He sees him just his train of his robe that fills the temple. Just a, lit, just a smidgen of this holy God. And I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. He is majestic, high and lifted up, always and only used of the Lord, high and lifted up. He is transcendent. That is, he is in a state of being that surpasses physical existence. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And so he just gets a glimpse. He just gets the train of the robe. Not even the full robe. Some have said it's the hem of his garment. It's like Moses when he's in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to walk by you, but I'm just going to, have to turn my back to you because if I face you, you're dead. And so he 
passes by Moses. And Moses comes down and he's glowing from being in the presence of the Lord. So he sees, in a time where people are going, what's going to happen to the nation? He sees the true King of Kings. And he also sees something else. There were two seraphim, six wings. With two they covered their eyes, they could not even look upon the Lord. With two they covered their feet, going back to Exodus, for the place in which they stood or flew was holy ground. And with two they flew. And one called to another, back and forth. It's like being at a stadium. I don't, won't even go into what Denver does, but I've been in stadiums where people say, like, at Oklahoma State, orange power, and they just keep going back and forth, and it just builds up because they're all excited about a football team. And this is far more exciting. One over here crying out to this one over here, and he goes, I'm going to say the same thing. And here's what they said. Love, love, love is the Lord of hosts. Sorry. Merciful, merciful, merciful is the Lord of hosts. No, that's not what... Just, just, just is the Lord of hosts. It's not what it says. It says holy. And not just one time. It says holy. Not just two times. See, Jesus, Jesus said even in... The New Testament, truly, truly, I say to you, as if to say, when I say truly, truly, you pay attention because what's coming is fact. Holy, holy, holy. Three times. Never used, the term is never used for any other characteristic of God, ever. It never says just, just, just. It never says merciful, merciful, merciful. It never says love, love, love. It says holy. It means set apart from the common, attributed to deity. So when Paul uses that term of saints, holy ones, he's talking of you and I who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who we are in our entire lives as we progress in that is just be who you are. Because the holy God whom is untouchable. He is utterly apart from anything sinful. That's who He is. If there's one characteristic and you want to describe God that's going to capture everything, it's holy. It's not love. It's not just. It's not merciful. It's holy. Because His love is a holy love. If, he, if we really understood His love in a holy love, we would fall down dead. If we really understood His justice, we would fall down dead. If we really understood the mercy that's been shown to us, we would fall down dead. Everything about God, everything we know about God is captured in that term holy. A state of being, of being utterly separate. That when people say, oh, that is a holy person. What they are saying is that person exudes characteristics that are radically different than what I see in my everyday life. Utterly separate. 
That's who God is. And so his love is a holy love. It is a love that you've never even, we will never, this side of heaven, totally understand. We might understand it a little bit just as we might understand holiness when we see the Grand Canyon. You walk up to the Grand Canyon and you don't walk up and go, honey, check out the bicep. You are consumed with its glory. That's who God is. This phrase captures two things. That's who He is. And then they say, the whole earth is full of His glory. God's glory is just the display of His holiness on earth. It's that simple. When it says in our, in our mission statement, we exist to bring glory to God, we just want to give an expression to the world of this holy God. Glory. Kavod in the Hebrew. It means weighty. I just saw these. These weren't planned. But somebody left their three pounders here. Weighty. This, even this three pounds is heavier than the air. It drops. It's weighty. It is permanent, not passing. It's real. This is real weight. It really drops. If I were to let it fall, there would be a bang. It is substantial. And for God's glory, it is important. It is permanent, it is real, it is substantial, and it is important. His whole, the whole earth is full of what's permanent and not passing. And look what it says. And the foundations of the thresholds shook. There was an earthquake just in the mention of God's holiness. When God shows up to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19, there's an earthquake. He's weightier. He's holy and utterly set apart. He's majestic, transcendent, and he comes down, and it is glorious. And this right here is what I learned and what is absolutely life-changing. Thank you, Dr. Keller what he says about those verses. Why would Isaiah want to stay faithful to a mission? Because of a radical transformation. And why was he even radically transformed? It's because he came face to face with a beautiful revelation of God. And this is what I learned from Dr. Keller, and I want to teach, preach, show you, is that Isaiah understood God as a reality and not a concept. If you understand God as a concept, you can mold him the way you want. If he's a concept, if he's just out there somewhere, you, and sin is out there somewhere, you can keep it at arm's distance and you can mold it. Dr. Keller said, God the concept is shaped by your agenda. It's lighter than you are. You shape him. He's a vitamin supplement. A self, this is a self-help book. That's God the concept. But God, the reality, is weightier than we are. That glory, it falls upon us, not just three pounds, but three trillion pounds of God's glory falls on us and it shakes everything up. Instead of us shaping God the concept, God the reality shapes our entire life. God the reality, when we come to see Him for who He is, His holiness, which means everything loving about Him is a holy love, even when He loves us enough to discipline us. The Lord loves 
or th- those whom he disciplines. It's a holy love. The worldly love wouldn't do it. It would let me get away with my sin. Oh, you know, that's just boys will be boys. No, not in the presence of a holy God. God, the concept is is weightier than we are, we are. And Dr. Keller said he'll rearrange the furniture of your life. He'll come into your heart and he will arrange, rearrange it. If you and I see him as a reality. Is God the, a concept for us or a reality? Is he rearranging the furniture of our life or are we rearranging him to fit our life? Dr. Keller said it best as if you are out of touch with God as a reality, then you're out of touch with life and you're living an illusion. You may hold him out here and speak of him and talk to him or talk of him, but unless you understand just how great, big, and grand he is, you will not change your life. You will not see him for who he is and go, I should be a dead man right now. I should be a dead woman right now. I should be a dead child right now. And when we don't, when we don't see God like that, uh, we, we say things like, oh, I'm just, just talking to the man upstairs. Just tipping my hat to God. There's no reverence. There's no awe. That if right now I said, look, don't do that. But if I said, look, and through that door came Barack Obama, there would be, you know, that button, that top button. That's the President of the United States. You know, you'd, you'd get all, you you end up, I would, wow, I'd be looking for Secret Service agents and like, and we would give the man in the position the reverence due his position. Doesn't matter. It's the President of the United States. We're talking about, as Isaiah said, I've seen the King. Not just the King of Israel. He, he's the Lord Almighty. He, he rules over everything. You see that? A glimpse of that? The whole world will be turned upside down. Because then we'll know who God is. He is, he is the most incredible, most beautiful, most um, important revelation ever. He's the most pertinent person ever. <laughs> it's because he's lived forever. There wasn't a time where he wasn't. He's always been. And by His grace, He's decided to give us and include us on His, what He's doing in the world. We'll know who God is and then comparing ourselves. When I compare myself to other people, man, it's, man, I can do 100 push-ups. Sheldon, he's about 50, i.e., I'm stronger than Sheldon. Okay, 60, sorry. Right? If I compare myself to Sheldon in push-ups, and then he's going to compare, yeah, but I can make... 20 free throws in a row, you're maybe zero, bricker, right? And so we start comparing ourselves to each other. I can run faster than he. It's just fact. 
But if I compare myself to Jesus Christ, by the way, who is the Hebrews 1.3, is the exact representation of God. So this holy God, how do we see Him best? We see Him in Jesus Christ. When I compare myself to Him, ooh, now let's move away from push-ups and miles, minutes per mile, but into, how's my attitude? How's my thought life? Not compared to anybody else, but compared to Jesus Christ. When I do that, I see Jesus for who He is, altogether lovely. I see myself for who I really am, not altogether lovely, altogether sinful, altogether deserving hell and everything that comes with it. And then He touches my lips. Not with the coal from the altar of sacrifice. But he touches my lips, metaphorically speaking, in his person in the work of Jesus Christ, who, although I was a yet enemy, died for me. Romans 5 says, I was an ungodly, helpless, sinful enemy. That's who I am. And God so loved me that he sent his son to die for my sins, that that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And you know what? Jesus, if you'll turn to verse 13, he's right there. The holy seed, the offspring is in the stump. Just listen to these verses. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelled in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. There's the context. Isaiah, you're going to preach, and it's going to be dark. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they were glad and divided the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff is his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken in the day of Midian. And it says, for unto us a child is born. It's a good Christmas sermon. Maybe we'll revisit that come December 24th. And if you keep going, it says, And there shall come forth, same language from Isaiah 6.13, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And the king, in the year that King Uzziah died, by the way, there's a coming king. And we know it's not King David. He's gone. Who is it? There shall come from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him like a dove, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. One greater than Solomon is here, and the Spirit of counsel and the might, and the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes with his ears, but he will judge with righteousness. And he's coming in Isaiah. And if we turn to Isaiah 52, they're still wondering. They're still wondering. Behold, at the end of that and into three, who has believed what has been heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, seed, stump, language. 
And like a root of the dry ground, and he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and esteemed not. Surely, surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried away our sorrows. He's touched our lips. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And it says in verse 10, this is how a holy God views this situation. Yet, yet, if you have a New American Standard, it was pleased the Lord to crush him. What? Yeah. It pleased God so much that He and His Son and the Holy Spirit, long before they even created the world, they said, this is how it's going to happen. And this is what needs to be done. And that person that they're talking about is Jesus Christ. And Isaiah almost ends his book with, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart, to pray, proclaim liberty to the captives. And guess what? Jesus comes in Luke 4 and he says that. He's in, this, he's in the temple. They undo the scroll. They read Isaiah. And he reads that and he says, Today, Today, this has been fulfilled in your sight and the people grew furious. You're equating yourself with God. Yes. And then just one chapter later, we'll end with this. On one occasion, the crowd was pressing him in Luke 5 and he's on the lake and he's teaching them. He had to get on the lake to teach them. And Jesus is teaching them. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Peter, Put into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now Peter should have said, you got it, Lord. But Peter, who I identify with a lot, says, Master. And he doesn't, we, we know you're a good teacher. I mean, we've seen that. But obviously I'm the fisherman, you're the rabbi. I mean, Master, we've toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word we'll put down. So they put the nets over, and it's like fish are jumping into the nets. In Luke 5, And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled for their partners. And you know what Peter's reaction is to Jesus? Just like Isaiah. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. I'm in the presence of God Almighty. And Peter would go on, and Jesus would say, no, no, no. You're going to catch men. This is just a miracle. I'm showing you this now. I will die for you, and you will catch men. And ultimately, what's Peter do? By tradition, we know that he died for his Savior. He was available, he was dependable, and he was expectant. He was expectant that the good news of the cross is the center of human history. It's the foundation of a new community. It's the solution to life's mystery. Who is God? Who am I? Why am I here?
that is what we're here for. We're here to stay faithful to the end because we have been radically transformed because we've come face to face with the holiness of God. Father, I cannot do justice to that concept of your holiness. And if I really think about me calling you Father, it's absolutely marvelous. Absolutely breathtaking. That the creator of the entire universe would desire to have a personal, individual relationship with me. There's nothing more we can say. We thank you. Pray that you would use your word more than this sermon to change the hearts of everybody. And we will trust you and we will stay faithful. I thank you for Jesus. It's in his name I pray. Amen.